Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. Okay, everyone, I'm here today with John Hale, who is an American archaeologist and historian who is the director of the Liberal Studies Program at the University of Louisville. He's a specialist in the ancient Mediterranean world, and his work has been featured in Scientific American, the New York Times, as well as on the Discovery and History channels and many other places. He's the author of many scholarly articles and books about the ancient world, including Lords of the Sea, the epic story of the Athenian Navy and the birth of democracy. And he has taught multiple history courses for the Great Courses Company. He's also done groundbreaking research about the Oracle of Delphi. So is there anything I'm major I'm missing there, Professor Hale? I think you hit the high points. Okay, great. Um, so I guess my first question is just a, a little bit about you. I've noticed a lot of your work has been around nautical and underwater archaeology. That came up again and again when I was doing some research for the episode, looking at your Wikipedia and your uh, bio at U of L's website. Why specifically have you been drawn to the oceans and the the navies and the ancient, uh, you know, naval encounters and things like that. Well, I credit it first to my dad. He uh, was the father of seven children, of which I'm the third. And one th one thing that he loved to teach each of us, because he loved to do it himself, was to swim. Hmm. So almost before we could walk, uh, each of us in turn would be dropped gently into the uh, shallow end of a swimming pool where he was waiting and he would hold us and teach us to move around and how to remain buoyant and babies of course naturally want to do that that's part of this aquatic ape theory that says we went through an actual aquatics phase as a species where we got rid of our body hair and learned to do something none of the other primates can do hold our breath mm. which is something you have to do underwater so uh, that introduction with him uh and then getting into swimming when I got to college at Yale, getting into rowing, continuing that in my grad school at Cambridge. They're very, they're very civilized in England. Graduate students can still row for the university and be in, in varsity sports. So it's just been a lifelong uh, attachment to rivers, to water, to swimming, rowing, everything of that kind of a sport. Hmm. Interesting. And so I, I think one of the main subjects we want to talk about today is the Greek and Persian wars and specifically how the, you know, the naval aspect of those wars, which people may not know as much about, uh, you know, in, in popular culture, I think uh, Thermopylae is probably the most well-known in Leonidas and the 300 Spartans and all of that. But in looking at some of this and kind of having a working knowledge of it, it sounds like the naval battles that took place were just as pivotal. So I guess what I'm thinking is we can start talking some about the Greek and Persian wars and wind our way back to a little bit about the oracles uh, that were involved with that. And so if we get into the Greek and Persian wars, which you did a great course about, uh, can you sort of set the stage a little bit for us? What were the Greek and Persian wars? What was the origin of that conflict in the ancient world? Sure. They are, to my mind, uh, what launched the modern world. Mm. Uh, I'm working on a book now at break of day, how the Greek and Persian wars launched the rise of the West. 
because when the Greek and Persian Wars started, Europe didn't have a sense of being a separate continent, which let's face it, it isn't really. Um, and Greeks, half of them lived in Asia. In fact, all their big cities were on the coast of what is today Turkey. Mm. And so there was this uh, sort of, in a mild way, globalism going on among the Greek worlds. They had spread out as colonists all the way from Italy and Sicily, all the way into Turkey and the Near East. And they ran up against this superpower that, unlike them, was very focused, a, an, an empire ruled by a great king, where all Persians had one uh, language, one home, one ruler, and one goal in life, take over the world for the great king of Persia. And the Greeks weren't like that. They were scattered among city-states. It wasn't until Alexander the Great, his father Philip of Macedon, came along that they got united unwillingly uh, behind one effort. But until that time, there were little city-states. City-states are important in human history. The city-states of Italy were what gave to rise to Rome. City-states of the Maya world were what gave rise to the great Mesopotamia, uh, sorry, Maya civilizations, and Mesopotamia was all city-states. The Bible came out of city-states. So uh, I'm fascinated by that period because city-states always have to defend themselves from all the others. So you get a warrior tradition, a soldier tradition, a patriotic tradition, for the first time in human history in those city-states. Mm, interesting, okay, so basically you're describing the Persian Empire was this uh, single political force and it was starting to, I mean, was it, did it instigate the expansion into what we think of today as modern day Greece and those city-states? Uh, how? What was kind of the, the origin of these two powers clashing were the were the city states less expansionary than the Persian Empire? Yes, they were. When the city states got excess population, they would get in ships and go west, typically into the Western Mediterranean, south to North Africa, and they would found new city states, colonies, which were still tied to the mother city by by ties of loyalty and friendship and alliance but were independent and often became much bigger and grander than the original city-state. What you have in Asia are kingdoms, mm -hmm. the idea of uh, one land, one ruler, one faith. And uh, this was a model that the Greeks just didn't follow. It wasn't until Alexander of Macedon, his father, King Philip, united them all under one Macedonian empire, you had that. So Asia gives us nation-states and Persia became one of those nation states. It mm. was out there in the land we call Iran. They spoke the Iranian language and they were riders. They were the greatest riders in the world. They had these step horses and ponies that they rode on. Their cavalry was unbeatable and they were archers who could shoot from horseback at full gallop. They could get off shot after shot from their bows so that they were almost like the other side of the coin from the Greeks who tended to be either heavy infantry with big spears and shields and helmets, or uh, in rowers, sailors at sea, rowing a, a, a battleship with a big ram on it. So it was, it was a little like these two great powers had trouble fighting because they didn't fight on the same field. Right, right. And, and these, uh, the Greco-Persian Wars or the Greek and Persian Wars, these were multiple conflicts that happened over kind of how long of a period of time and what uh, can you kind of place this for us, uh, you know, in terms of history and when this was happening? Sure. In the late 500s BC, the Persians 
by accident uh, produce one of the one of the triple alpha conquerors of all time, Cyrus the Great. Mm. He was such an impactful person. He's the first person to be named Messiah in the Hebrew Bible mm. because he liberated the Hebrews from the Babylonians and let them go back to their land in Israel. So he gets to be called Messiah. Well, that's Cyrus. He's the start of the Greek and Persian Wars because he, uh, he found the Greeks really hard to fight and he didn't like losing battles. He realized it's not good for your mojo and your reputation if you <laughs> get bogged down and long sieges, you can't win. So there was a cousin people to the Persians, they were called Medes, M-E-D-E, -E, and they spoke a similar language and they were, they were cousins. So we would send Medes who had been dealing with the Persians uh, as fellow conquerors, they went off and they, they conquered the, the Greeks. Uh, but Cyrus and his, his son Cambyses, and then their successor, the Persian Darius, and his famous son Xerxes, who tried to bring the world's biggest army and native history to conquer Greece. These are the four kings that really made it a mission to conquer little old Greece and failed. Mm. Okay, and so I think that, uh, so, okay, so there was Dar Darius and then his son Xerxes. Was Darius the first who actually invaded an, into a land kind of situation into, into Greece, or did Cyrus actually do that? Well, Cyrus, as I said, he didn't like to lose battles. There was a, a brother people, a, a, a sibling people to the Persians called the Medes, who mm. had, had generations of, of contact with Greeks. Cyrus sent the Medes, along with the Persian Corps of Engineers who could do all the artillery and the siege engines and things. So with the Persian engineers and the Medes as the ones taking the hit if they didn't win the battles, rather than staining the reputation of a Persian general or a Persian king, they did conquer all of the Eastern Greeks. And then it was in the time of uh, Darius and Xerxes that since the, the, the European Greeks in what is today Greece kept sending raiders across and attacking Persian territory, they thought the Greek problem won't be, won't be really fixed till we conquer the Greeks of Europe, the Spartans, the Athenians, the Corinthians, then we will have control. So that's what the famous Greek and Persian wars are all about with battles like Marathon, Thermopylae, uh, the sea battle at Salamis. Those are the famous mm -hmm. ones. Those, those last two Persian kings in our series that we're talking about, Darius, his son Xerxes, Darius sent the forces to Marathon, maybe okay. the most famous of all ancient battles, because we still run those 27 miles, the distance right. to Athens that uh, they ran then. And uh, then his son Xerxes followed up with this huge armada of ships and uh, biggest army the world had ever seen, thinking, I'm going to get this job done. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, and before we get to uh, the naval battles, which were so pivotal. I do want to ask you about the Thermopylae because it's been an ongoing kind of point of debate on the podcast. I've talked to, you know, I mean, some sometimes it's framed as a very pivotal moment in the Greek and Persian wars, but I've also heard kind of a um, contrarian viewpoint that it was it's been built up by kind of pro-Spartan propaganda over the over the eons and it really was was really not a particular important battle and it was nothing but a speed bump on the way to the the naval um 
and you know the the Athenian battles and stuff like that that we're going to talk about. I'm curious if you have a you know uh, a perspective on this kind of debate and if it even really is a debate. Um, you know, because I do think that the the 300 and and the you know that does loom large in the public, uh, the 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 public mind and pop culture mind. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Just briefly, you don't have to go into depth and, unless you feel like it. <laughs> I'm happy to be brief. Um, what's the big battle we all remember as Americans and how the West was won? The Alamo. Hmm. Was that a victory? No, it was a noble defeat. Marathon's a victory. Thermopylae was a, a noble, heroic defeat. I also think Leonidas, for all of the mojo he packs in the movies he's represented in, was really outgeneraled by Xerxes. Hmm. Uh, they both learned that there was a way around the pass at the same time. This was Leonidas's first command, and hmm. he'd never expected to be king. He was only yeah. king because several family members had, had died out. So he he just accepted the local people who lived up in those hills who said, oh, we'll look after it for you. We'll, we'll make sure those Persians don't get through. And he said, oh, thank you. And then didn't do anything else about it. Mm. Xerxes, who heard about that, same time, and sent his 10,000 crack troops, his personal 10,000 infantry who were called the immortals by the Greeks, because whenever one died immediately, their place was filled by another. And he sent them around 10,000 of the best troops in the Persian army up and around to take the Greeks from the rear. And that's what finished uh, Leonidas. I'm not sure he was in a position where he could win. I'm not sure if the Greeks had sent all their forces to Thermopylae, that's the place they could win. But um, Xerxes got it. And uh, Leonidas, I'm sure, was just as brave and just as uh, heroic about going to the last stand. The great thing he did at the end was when it was clear they were going to be surrounded by the Persians, he sent all the other Greeks back to their homes so they would live to fight another day in the south, back Athens and Corinth and everywhere like that. But he stayed with the Spartans to make sure that the Persians would be delayed long enough that the other Greeks could live to fight another day. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So it did, it did have some effect on the, how this played out at the time and have some sort of inspirational impact. On well, what it's like the you? Alamo. The Alamo became a rallying cry for completing the American successful takeover of what is now the American Southwest. Hmm. If we hadn't had the Alamo, Mexico might come right up into up until Colorado. We just don't know. Uh, and I'm not someone who likes I know it's fun when you've had your, you're sitting around a fireside late at nine, you get into counterfactual history. What if? Yeah. But um, in general, the what ifs become uh, so many possibilities so quickly. Yeah. I mean, it makes for, for good chit chat and, and uh, fireside talking, but uh, I think as real history, much better to try to really get at the facts of what went on and try to get in the minds of the decision makers. Interesting. Interesting. So we have the Persian army led by Xerxes making their way through Greece. Right. And after Thermopylae and after they continue to make progress, can you kind of um, set the stage that leads up to these naval uh, uh, um, naval conflicts that prove to be so important? Right. The importance of Thermopylae was it was the last narrow place 
in in the central and in Greece that the Persians could be stopped and where the, the narrow, the, the cliff on one side, the sea on the other, created a place where the Persian advantage in numbers was neutralized. Mm. Both, both opposing armies were limited, limited to a very narrow front. Xerxes could back up behind that, tens of thousands more back up, but he can't put them on the front line. Right. So it's, and, and the great thing about the Greeks was they had this hoplite style warfare. Every man is a standing fortress. He's got a bronze clad shield, circular thing that's hollow, that's a yard across. He carries it on the forearm of his left arm and it's hollow so he can fit it onto his shoulder and it, it really, he hides inside it almost. He's got a bronze helmet, sometimes a bronze breastplate, but always those bronze shin guards there's nothing exposed of him to the enemy except his eyes in those yeah. little slits that isn't sheathed in bronze. So when you've put a whole line of them together, shield to shield, they're like a fortress yeah. in themselves. And with their spears sticking out front, the pride of Xerxes Persian forces, the cavalry cannot get their horses to charge that wall, that bristling forest of spear points. The horses won't do it. Yeah. And the archers, the Persian archers, if they if they shoot, it all those arrows just rattle off. They're the, wasting the bronze. Yeah, yeah they're so wasting it's, arrows. It's uh, an immovable force facing an, uh, an irresistible, or an irresistible force facing an immovable object, and it's a standoff. And so the and and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Persian army far outnumbered the number of general Greek fighters at the time, I mean, between all the city-states, is that, I mean, if it, it would they have just, uh, I mean, were, were they able to just sort of engulf all of Greece just by overwhelming them with numbers? It's hard to believe the numbers that uh, Herodotus, the Greek historian gives for the Persians, which are very specific, because you can't figure out the logistics of supplying food to that many men when you don't have a home base as the Greeks do to supply from when you're carrying all the food with you. Mm. So I think that the, uh, I mean, he gets them to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these Persians marching into Greece. I, I don't buy it and most, most people don't, but that that may have been the on paper strength of the Persian empire is possible. Remember the, the Eastern territory of the, the Persian empire is modern Afghanistan. The Northern territories are in what is today steps of Russia. They have they parts of India they control. Arabia is theirs, all of the Near East, all of Turkey, Egypt is theirs, all of North Africa. They, they are more than half the known world is under the control of that one leader, the great King of Persia. And every adult male in all those territories is obliged, just like they have to pay taxes and tribute, they gotta do military service. So the Greeks are really up against it. Hmm. So your book is called Lords of the Sea, the epic story of the Athenian Navy and the birth of democracy. So uh, I want to talk about the Athenian Navy and, and how uh, and its role in all of this. Um, when did the when did these naval conflicts start and uh, and and how did they um, how, how did this work with, you know, you have the I guess the battles happening on land but then you also simultaneously have naval battles happening? Well, um, the first battle happened on land. It was kind of a, a, a foray, an advanced strike by the Persians, and that's Marathon okay. in the year 490. 
great mm. king himself did not come along on that one. He sent a general and they come down to the northern part of Attica, which is the territory of the Athenians at a plain called Marathon. Persians are always looking for planes because they got to deploy their cavalry. And the hoplites of the Greeks, those heavily armored, uh, helmeted shields, long spears, those spearmen like planes too, because they have trouble scrambling up slopes and, mm. and uh, keeping their formation in rugged terrain. So yeah. they were all happy with a plane, but Marathon was mainly a matter of a wily old Athenian named Miltiades, who'd been a warlord at a little Greek territory in Asia Minor. He, his land had actually been taken over by the great king and he, he, he fled the Persians and brought his family back to, to Athens. But he knew the great king himself. He'd met um, Darius, Xerxes' father, mm. who was the king at Marathon and didn't come to Marathon, but, but Miltiades knew Persians. So he led the, the, uh, the, the Athenians out there. Spartans didn't get there in time. So it's mainly the Athenians and one little group called the Plataeans, a neighboring town. And they go out and what Miltiades uh, says is you can also win a battle by not fighting. If the enemy has come to your territory and you deny them a battle and they can't defeat you because you've got yourself in a little corner of your territory, they can't get you out and smash you, you've won. Mm. Because they're gonna, it's logistics. They can't be away from home indefinitely without a victory. Mm. So the longer you survive, the, the greater your chances that they'll go home unsuccessful. So Marathon was like that. Uh, it wasn't a, really a big battle on the side of the field of Marathon, no matter what the later fantasists of ancient times have liked to tell us. Mm. Uh, I've walked it all myself. I've, they've, the big deal was discovering where Miltiades, that wily old campaigner who'd served the, the previous king of Persia knew, and knew Darius, yeah. uh, he read the Persian mind. He said, if we winkle ourselves into a little tiny corner of this territory surrounded by rocks and cliffs and forests where they can't get at us, but they can't get past us. If they tried to march onto Athens, we would be behind them and take them from the rear. We can pin them down here until the sailing season is over and they got to go home. Yeah. So that was his plan. Marathon was a little, uh, a little shrine to a sacred hero and it was facing the sea north of Athens. And it was in a, a sort of valley that gave on to the sea, but behind it were cliffs. The Persians couldn't take the Athenians from behind. And there was then a, a way out of it onto the big plain of Marathon where the Persians had encamped and unloaded their cavalry, their horses from their ships. So they were romping around the Marathon plain, but they couldn't go on toward Athens, the 27 miles between Marathon and Athens, because they would leave the Athenian army behind them. Right. And no army has a greater dread than being taken from the rear. So yeah. it's, it's Miltiades. He was a uh, warlord, an old campaigner. He wasn't a guy who'd grown up in the formal U.S. Army style mentality of generals in city states. He mm. thought, you know, like a pirate. How do you yeah. work things out? How do you win when you're the underdog? How do you take advantage of every possible uh, bit of terrain or timing? And he is what saved Athens by thinking okay. that way. Okay, so and it really, he really... Um uh use the ge geography and uh factored in a lot of things that maybe someone else may not have in order to what did the persians essentially just have to leave like you said did they was the, was was there any uh i mean there must have been some amount of fighting but kind of what um was it just not as on the scale of what the later uh ancient writers built it up to be 
exactly that. It's not the scale. It wasn't a full-scale battle on both sides. What precipitated was, after more than a week of waiting, uh, it's late summer, and the Mediterranean and that area around Greece, between Greece and modern Turkey, Greece and Asia, there is a point at which, in fall, the winter storms set in. And if you haven't won your battles in Europe by then, you'll never get home. Mm. You can't get back in your ships and sail back. So they are under this gun, the Persians, to complete the conquest in late summer before the sailing season ends and they're stuck in Greece with all their horses and all their troops eating their heads off and how do you make this work? So they've got to win. And the Greeks know that, that it's a delaying thing. If we can just delay this long enough, they will, they'll have to go home. So Miltiades, and he is, like I said, he wasn't a, a city-state patriotic hero. He was a warlord. Mm. His father, he, uh, his son, Cimon, they had all left Athens and founded little, um, little fiefdoms, little private kingdoms off in the Greek world where they were often fighting Persians and others and living as warlords. And he came back because his little fiefdom up in, it's up near where Istanbul is today, that seaway between the Black Sea and the, the Aegean Sea where all the trade went through. Well, Miltiades grew up there. That's where he was levying tolls on people and doing piratical raids and stuff. Uh, and so he was used to that kind of life and he knew Persians, he knew all these people and the, the home Greeks didn't. Persians were aliens to them. So, but Miltiades knows all this. In fact, he, he hired himself out to the Persian king at one point, uh, Xerxes' father, Darius, who was the king at, who sent the Persians to uh, Marathon. Uh, he, he knew all these people. So he, um, he comes back and he realizes, we can't beat these people in a, in a straightforward army to army fight. Right. They just sur surround us and, and, and starve us to death or crush us. We, we can't do that. We got to use our heads. So he says, what we got to do is find a place where we can be right there when they land. And they know that if they send their cavalry overland to try to attack Athens, which was their, their target, 27 miles south of, Thermop of Marathon, uh, we can take them from the rear or we can mm -hmm. destroy their ships and they'll never get home. So they wait for days and days for Miltiades to come out and fight you know, I'm sure calling him coward and things like that. He didn't care. He knew what he needed to do. And ultimately the Persians, I think made the right call. It didn't work out for them, but I think they had no choice. They left a holding force of infantry there at, Mar at uh, Marathon on the north side of Athens, 27 miles north of Athens on that plain. They then hopingly secretly got into their ships and eased off and hoped without Miltiades and his fellow Athenians noticing that they could get around to Athens and take it while Athens was stripped of its fighting men, Miltiades and all the mm -hmm. Athenian hoplite soldiers are up at Marathon, they would then be 27 miles south having gotten there by ship and take the unprotected city. It would all work out. Well, the trouble was there were some Greeks who had already been enslaved by the Persians. We don't think much about these Greeks today, but there were Greek city-states all up and down the coast of Turkey. They were now fighting for the Persians, but their hearts, their loyalties were with the Athenians. And some of them were colonists generations back of Athenians. So they found a way to sneak up to 
by night, it seems, sneak up to within hailing distance of where Mil Miltiades and the, the Athenian army was hunkered down in that narrow place and send a signal. It was remembered uh, all the way to the time of the Roman Empire. It was two words in Greek, horos hippes, the horse are away, meaning the Persians had loaded their cavalry, which was the real killing force of their, their land army, onto the ships and were going to go around by ship to Athens. Well, Miltiades got it immediately. And the next morning, he realized there's just a stump of the Persian army left. The high command, the cavalry, they're all gone. Some of the army's there, and they will plan then to hold us in place till the rest can get around and take an undefended Athens, our city, which we have left behind right. 27 miles to the south. They'll take it before we can do anything about it. So he thinks we got to do things, two things. We got to beat this stump of the army that's been left behind. And then we got to run 27 miles to Athens and get there before the cavalry does in those ships. So it makes to me actually a much more exciting story than the normal uh, narrative to realize all these st strategies going on. It's like a game of chess rather than just big army, little army and who wins. Yeah. Yeah. And so, okay. So uh, once the, um, once this wave of the Persian invasion of Greece is thwarted, then we have Darius's son Xerxes leading a force into Greece. And this is the first time the uh, one of the great Persian kings, emperors, actually comes with the army into Greece. Is that right? That's right. And the right title to use is the one they use themselves, King of Kings. Mm. The, the, the title of, the, of uh, Darius, of Xerxes, of their predecessors, Cyrus and his son Cambyses, those four are the, the sequence of the four kings who created the Persian Empire, won all that territory, king of kings. I'm a king, but I rule over kings. Yeah. Because they would often leave the kings they beat in place to, as governors, and now the kings report to them. You sometimes see that in uh, modern things for, uh, I've, I've seen Jesus called king of kings, things yeah. like that. Um, so it became a, a wider title, but that was official for them, king of mm. kings. So, the, and they knew that often the best person to, to rule a conquered people is their own ruler, their monarch who knows them and has some loyalty, but he's now, what he's really doing is adopting his foreign policy from the Persian king he, they tell him what battles to fight and who he's got to bring his armed forces to attack. And he's also got to pay annual tribute to, to Persia. But it was not onerous. Right. It wasn't um, a brutal uh, squeeze people dry kind of a tyranny, the Persian Empire. And uh, there were some benefits in that neighbors weren't always at each other's throats. Most people yeah. slept more soundly in their beds after the, the Persians took over. So I'm, I'm impressed by the Persians, the early law codes we have are Persian rather than Greek. Uh, so, and, and their, you know, their road system, their messenger system, they had the first organized postal system on the planet uh, with uh, our Pony Express Im imitated the Persian uh, riders on their royal roads. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of both sides. Well, and it's, it's interesting because we, you know, we've, uh, we've done a lot about Alexander the Great and in reading about him, you know, it, it really dawned on me that in a lot of these places, a lot of these cities, you know, it was like he'd come in and then they'd, you know, and try to get them to pledge allegiance to him instead of the Persian king. And it was like 
for them, it almost didn't, I mean, it almost seems like it didn't matter one way or another. It was like, you know, they just wanted to, everyone's trying to align themselves with who's not going to, you know, who they think is going to be the victor, I guess, and not going to kill them and their, the people. Is that fair? You have summed up the the mentality of some of the most important people who got involved in famous wars throughout history, tribal peoples and city-state peoples. Mm. City-states are like tribes with one street address. Uh, They've all settled down, built their houses, built a wall. Tribes are more amorphous, spread out over a territory and a landscape. But if you think of the, the trouble that the United States had with all of its modern weaponry and everything, de- dealing with tribal Native Americans, those wars went on for two centuries. Yeah. And all the firepower, all of the, all of the obvious uh, uh, advantages of military force were on the side of the invading Europeans and then later the, the Americans uh, of the United States, the young United States, but nonetheless, one thing about it is that tribal peoples fight as warriors nation state people fight as soldiers Hmm. soldiers take orders initiative is a bad thing for a soldier to have unless that soldier has been made a general right you want your general to have initiative you don't want any of the soldiers to have initiative you want them to be courageous bold and follow orders tribes aren't like that every fighter in a tribe is a warrior seeking glory uh, they may have a charismatic leader here in Indiana, where I lived, the Shawnee were the terror of American expansion for a full generation when their charismatic general leader Tecumseh was uh, out generaling all of the forces and commanders that the young United States sent against him. And uh, he was also a charismatic good person. I mean, he had strong values. He, uh, he had great honor. He wanted to maintain an Indian independence. He, he, he brought people over to his side. Even people in the United States had to kind of admire him. He was a great orator. Some of his speeches, some of his sayings were recorded. I think the Greek and Persian Wars created people like that. People who remember, we remember today because of the, the heroism brought out of them by this epic conflict. And that's one reason we still follow it. Well, and I think there's this sense in some of the pop culture movies and stuff that the Persian soldiers were slaves and the Greek soldiers were free. And I just think it's worth, um, I I don't know to what extent that's true, but I think it is worth pointing out that the Greek city-states had slaves too. The Spartans had slaves, the Athenians had slaves. It wasn't as though everyone was living this life of freedom in Greece and the Persians were all enslaved in some, you know, super oppressive situation. At least that's my impression. What are are your thoughts? No, no, your your impression is 100% correct. Um, Every Greek hoplite soldier, that heavily armored hoplite with his yard wide circular shield and his bronze helmet and his breastplate and his, his shin guards and his long spear and his sword, he was never alone. He didn't carry all that stuff to the battlefield. He had a slave. There's an equal number of slaves to fighting men as hoplites. And so it's a slave society. And my, my favorite saying to remind my students of when they get uh, sort of uh, standoffish about accepting the ancient world as people we should care about because they had slaves is to remind them of a, a famous saying uh, by one of those ancients um, 
until until liars can play music by themselves, until looms can weave cloth by themselves, we will have slaves. Meaning that for the entertainment industry, which was huge, and the production industry, which was huger and more vital, before you had a mechanized society, there was no way to make them work unless you had forced labor. As soon as, when do we get rid of slavery? Industrial Revolution. What was the last mm. war about slavery? 1860s, American Civil War. Yeah. Because the South still needed slaves for the looms, for the, the cotton trade, literally the, the production of, of cloth. So it's a, um, I think Aristotle, he's always worth reading. He's like the ultimate prophet for the future as he puts his finger on why these institutions exist um in an economic sense he got that in a way many of his contemporaries didn't that it's economics that drive everything well economics drove slavery and so i don't uh the, and the rowers on board these ancient ships for the greeks they were never slaves mm. they were always citizens because they were combatants too and if there was a shortage of rowers and they had to put slaves on they gave those slaves their freedom first and then they would be able to row because they were free men and would do it of their own free will. So a um, lot of interesting corners about ancient warfare and that slave versus free thing that's still so controversial for us today. Yeah. And I just, I want to be careful because I think in a lot of things, the, the Persians are portrayed as the bad guys, quote unquote, and the Greeks are portrayed as the good guys. And there's this slavery connotation, but uh, in looking at Sparta, you know, and I mean, they were... Sparta had an entire nation yes. that they had enslaved. The right. Helots are, uh, uh, and the Messenians, these are groups of people. We don't even know at what point the Spartans got hold of their Helots. They were a non-Spartan people they conquered mm. and made serfs, slaves, uh, like robots that just had to uh, serve their Spartan masters. The Messenians were an equal... Uh, Greek city-state to Sparta early on before the Persian invasion. And there were battles where the Persians conquered the Messenians. They didn't exactly enslave them, but they became a subject people, had to pay tribute to the Spartans, lost their own foreign policy, uh, had to serve this under the Spartan command. So the Spartans are a very imperialistic state. They are also a slave state. Mm. So were the Athenians, but for the Athenians, slaves were never allowed to to be combatants in warfare. The rowers in Athenian warships were never slaves. If they mm. needed slaves, they would free them first and then give them an oar, then give them the weaponry so they could serve Athens. But it was unacceptable to them to think, and I can't read their minds on this. Did they not want to put slaves at risk? Would it just seem inappropriate to have slaves serving along free men? Did you not trust the slave to fight uh, on your side? We can't read their minds. We just know slaves could not be combatants. And that included rowing in a ship of war. Interesting. Well, and let's talk about, let's talk some more about the Athenian Navy. So Marathon proves to be a victory for Greece uh, or the yes. Greeks, correct? And then yes. we have uh, this next generation of the the great, the king of kings of Persia coming in um, and, uh, and starting to engulf more and more of, of what is today current day Greece. Um, right, right, and it, it all, um, my understanding is it all sort of culminates in some naval encounters. Is that, is that fair to say? 
it's fair to say because those are the most famous ones because the Athenians were, were chief among those who influenced the history writers and uh, it was the naval battles that the Athenians shone most brightly. The final battle that drove the Persians out of Greece, uh, Xerxes had already gone home. He'd watched the battle of Salamis being lost by his, uh, his own grand armada of a thousand ships with only 300 Athenian and other Greek ships to oppose it. He'd gone back leaving the conquest of Greece uh, to his generals with his grand army still there, or at least some of it. And then a year after the battle of Salamis, 479, remember the BC years count backwards. Right. Um, he, uh, up north of, uh, of Athens toward the big city of Thebes, there was a little town called Plataea and a big broad plain where the Persians could deploy their cavalry. And so the Persians had camped out there and the Greeks went up and that's where they fought the final battle. And it was a land battle. Mm. But at that point, all the Greeks had united together, all the Southern Greeks, Corinthians, Athenians, Spartans, everybody. And those top light warriors, those heavily armored, big shield, helmet, breastplate, the men of bronze, the, the, the Persian horses just wouldn't charge them. And so it was a, it was, that was where the, the Persian effort to take over Europe broke. Well, and it, well, and it, is it fair to say that the, at that point that the tide had really shifted toward the Greeks? I mean, if Xerxes had left and all the Greeks were united, I mean, was is there? Can you say that the Battle of uh, Salamis uh, is that the right pronunciation? I'm not sure, but is was uh, that kind of where everything hung in the balance? I, I want you to say you are you are free to pronounce almost any Greek word any way you want because the way the ancient Greeks pronounce them is in many cases not the way a a modern Greek would pronounce it. So uh, feel free, feel okay, free. Uh, I say Salamis, but Salamis. Um, okay. And uh, that's been kind of traditional in English for a long time. You can tell from where poems have it. You know, the accent was on the first syllable, but mm, don't worry about it. Okay. Um, so. Um, Yes, what had happened was it took the Persians invading Greece to make the Greeks unify in an effort. They were typical city-states, like the city-states of Italy, as I said, in the Renaissance, the city-states of Asia Minor before this period when Greek city-states had taken over the whole of the Aegean and what's today Turkey. Um, city-states in the Maya, city-states like to fight each other. And it took an invading empire to make those city-states forget their differences and say, we got to survive this. Let's recognize common leaders among our alliance and we will all follow them. So this is the first sign that Greece might one day be a nation state. Hmm. Uh, it had been, remember, they had those stories of the, the Trojan War where the great king Agamemnon, because he was the overlord king, made all the little kings follow him to Troy. So they had the vision of a Greece that was uh, united, but um, it's, um, they weren't that way. They were, uh, they were divided. Athens, Sparta was a little city-state. It had taken over a, a big territory, but it was that idea of the, the central city-state. One thing that's good about it is in city-states, every citizen feels my voice can be heard. Mm. That's not true in a nation state like America. Most of us are resigned to the fact that our voice is never going to be heard. Yes, we can send an op-ed letter to the local paper, but that ain't the same as an Athenian standing up in the assembly and for 
a moment, and maybe only once in that Athenian citizen's life, they're the voice that every other citizen of the 30,000 Athenian citizens is hearing, mm. making a proposal, reacting to a, a news from, from a, a, an attacking army or something. So it was participatory democracy. Also, uh, they participated in the judicial system in a way we don't. Sorry, you got me on a hobby horse here. What are we thinking with juries of 12? On a regular basis, we'll have hung juries. It's just gonna happen. How big were Athenian juries? 501. Mm. You can never have a hung jury. And you don't need to interview jurors. In 501, you've got every possible shade right. and grade of prejudice, ignorance, knowledge. It's ideal. Why can't we have 501? We could do that. And in fact, with our uh, internet system, it would be very easy to do it. Well, all right, I'll stop reading. No, no, and let it's you funny. It's funny you say that because I also I also have huge problems with the jury stuff. It's always baffled me that they don't have a more randomized kind of process because you know, take someone like yourself. I mean, if there was ever a case involving you know some of these subjects, you would not be allowed to serve on the jury because they exactly. don't allow actual experts on, and so yeah. they're creating this kind of artificial situation that just is it's it's um it's so strange to me the way that we do that I, I i don't think it logically makes a ton of sense although i do i think it's an incredible system that we do have these juries and and all of that but um but anyways okay all right that's a but I, i'll say this i think that there are enough people who benefit from this uh trial lawyers maybe maybe judges like that that the jury is a small little body that can be deadlocked and somehow they find that a good thing. Yeah. And they've perpetuated this system, which seems to me inexcusable. That's no, I totally agree. I think that's right. Um, okay, so we're talking some now about kind of the uh, role of democracy in Athens and in a little bit of uh, what was at stake um, with these conflicts. Um, Let's see. So, so again, I'll go back to the title of your book, the subtitle being the epic story of the Athenian Navy and the birth of democracy. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, um, that aspect that, uh, you know, this, um, how is the Navy protecting Athens and stuff kind of contributing to the birth of democracy? In those ancient Greek city states, you had full citizen rights if you fought for your city state, your country. Mm -hmm. If you were unable to fight because you weren't rich enough to own weapons, well, you can't be a full citizen. And of course, slaves by definitions can't own their own weapons, so they can't be citizens. Women don't fight, so they can't be citizens. Mm. So um, what the miracle was that made Athens was a pure chance. They'd won the Battle of Marathon, but they knew the Persians were gonna come back and they did come back 10 years later. But seven years after the Battle of Marathon, the Athenians who, owned as a corporate body of citizens, a silver mine that was mm. on their territory. There was a mount called Mount Lavrion, uh, the mountain of silver. It was off to the south and east of, of, of Athens. And there was, in a small way, silver mining had been going on there for generation. But seven years after Marathon, three years before the Persians came back, the slaves working in those mines struck a reef of silver ore in that mine. It was just boundless. And they're bringing it out and it's a huge treasure. And there was a, a, a move when the news got up to the popular assembly of all the citizens in Athens of all this money 
Well, traditionally, they had divided the income from the silver mines, which wasn't all that great, among all the 20,000 citizens. And they thought, great, we're all going to be rich. Until one of the 10 generals got up, his name was Themistocles, and he said, look, if we, if we all take a little bit of that money, Athens doesn't benefit. But if we keep it all together and do one thing, build ships, build us a navy with that silver, you see that island out there? And he could point to it from the assembly place, which was near the sea. You see that island? You know those, those pirates, those enemies of ours who live there, those Aeginetans? The islanders of Aegina were good Greeks, just like the Athenians, but they were had gotten into seafaring and colonization by sea much before the Athenians. They were like, if you can think of the richest popular possible small nation in the world today, I don't know, that's what the Aeginetans were. They were mm. merchant princes, all of them. And uh, they ruled the seas at that point. The Athenians did not, though they were much bigger, much bigger population. Athens was a bigger city. But he said, now we can build the ships. We can build 200 ships with that silver. We can beat those guys. Well, he was, he read his fellow citizens the way a coach reads the, the team at halftime in the pep talk. What do they need to hear? We can beat those guys who we're seeing right there. Nothing about distant Persian here. And then we'll become masters of the sea. So he got them to agree. They built those ships. And in the end, they allied with the Greeks of Aegina to mm. fight the Persians. And at the Battle of Salamis, they were all fighting side by side. But that's what won the Battle of Salamis. The, the 200 Athenian ships that had been built with that silver from the silver strike just three years earlier and the unity of the Greeks, where the, the Athenians forgot all of their rivalries, their bitter hatreds of their neighbors, we're in this together. So wow. unity and a little bit of good fortune. So was Themistocles an actual, was he a commander himself? Uh, was this just his idea to build this out or did he actually have a role in the battle of Salamis? He does have a role. Uh, the Athenians elect as a people, their military officers. There were 10 generals, just the way we might have, uh, well, if we elected Supreme Court judges, that would be an example of a small group of important people elected by the, the, uh, the democratic taxpaying population, the citizens. Um, if we elected all of our ambassadors, we could do all that, we don't, I don't know why, but um, at any rate, the, uh, their, their, their uh, generals were elected. So, and, and every, every citizen serves. Every, every male citizen serves in the uh, armed forces. And once they got the fleet and all the poor citizens who previously didn't have full citizen rights and couldn't hold office, now they can row. If you've got an oar in your hand, that's your weapon. You're a soldier, mm -hmm. you've got full citizen rights. So it was a huge democratizing thing for Athens. But that's why it was an emotional thing because the Athenians, the old guard Athenians, the guys who owned horses and were the well, they called them equites, uh, hippes, uh, the, the horsemen, the knights, as they're sometimes called. They didn't like the, the lower class laborers coming up and challenging them in the assembly or in the law courts. And the hoplites, the, the farmers who had their own land and out of that wealth, they, they had their bronze armor and their shield and their weapon and a slave to carry all that stuff to the battlefield. They, they didn't like the rise of this lower class individual workers who didn't own slaves, who did the work themselves, 
vast majority of the population, now they can all be combatants. They can all be fighters for Athens in the ships of the Navy pulling oars. So that was the transformation for, for Athens to become the world's first true radical democracy. Every citizen can serve the state. Every citizen can have the rights to guide the state through decisions and through holding office. Interesting. And so at this, uh, at this important battle, uh, this naval battle, the Battle of Salamis, what, was the uh, was the Persian Navy completely destroyed at this battle? Uh, you mentioned, I think, did you say three? They had three hundred or three thousand ships or something like that. <laughs> um, the the uh, the Athe the Greek force is two hundred Athenians and about a hundred more. Uh, Corinth, uh, uh, an old city that was a wonderful uh, maritime city, uh, colonies, maritime colonies all over the Mediterranean. Corinth was famous for its naval uh, fighting and the Athenians, the Spartans were not naval people ever. There were a few, they rustled up a few ships that were mm. manned by Spartans and the over, over uber general for the Greeks was always a Spartan because the Athenians were not popular with other Greeks. They were just too pushy, too successful. The other Greeks didn't like this democracy stuff. Everybody could get behind a Spartan like Leonidas. And the Spartans had two kings who were like right. generals for life. So there was always a general to do, uh, a, a Spartan king to be in charge of the sea effort and in ships and in charge of the land uh, mm -hmm. effort as a general like Leonidas had been. So that's how they worked it out. And uh, they won that battle of Salamis and that was when Xerxes went home. <laughs> the king of Persia gave up when he saw that with a thousand ships, he still couldn't beat these Greeks. Did he, do you, do you think he went home? Was To what extent was it, uh, he just realized that they weren't going to win. And so there was no point in him being there. Or was he actually worried about his own safety? I don't know how to answer that. He is, he's a, he is to me, one of the most interesting of ancient monarchs, uh, especially in that world of Greeks and Persians. He is the first uh, Persian king to have been born a king. Hmm. His father was the great king Darius. Uh, Cyrus, the founder, He'd just been in a noble family. His son, Cambyses, had been born before Cyrus himself was a king. And Darius was a general who made himself king. So Xerxes is the first sort of prince born to the purple. So he doesn't pretend to be a fighter, a soldier. He, he gets good generals, but he goes with his troops and his fleets where they go. I really admire him for that. I admire Xerxes a lot. Hmm. Uh, he tried to make them all get along. He, he made... Uh, councils of people uh of his of his leaders to advise him and uh one of those was actually a woman the, the little greek city-state of halicarnassus where the historian herodotus was born it was ruled by a queen her name was artemisia named for the greek goddess artemis and she led her own naval contingent and there's the records of xerxes asking everybody to give their opinion and of course most of them want to appear like hawks and artemisia gets up and says uh, King Xerxes, why do we need to fight this battle? You're already Lord of Greece. You have conquered the land of Greece. Hmm. We can only lose in this battle if it does not go our way. And so she says, I am, I am in favor of maintaining our position here, but not giving the Greeks, the home Greeks, the battle they want. Just maintaining our presence here in Greece, they will ultimately fragment, dissipate, and we can conquer the rest of Greece then. It was very good advice. 
but Xerxes had to look at the, the vote of all of the different commanders and she was very thoroughly outvoted. Um, it was like a, uh, somebody's trying to make the book balance. Uh, that's the kind of person Artemisia was, uh, you know, let's, let's look at the odds on both sides. Let's forget the heroism and the glory. How's this going to work out? Yeah. Um, right. So we could have a very rational. different world if her advice had been taken. Well, and I, I think it's, um, I'm remembering the, uh, again, in looking at Alexander the Great and, uh, you know, the, these conflicts with uh, the Persian, uh, uh, with Xerxes and the other Persian forces coming into Greece loomed large in the mentality of the Greeks for some time after all for of this. For centuries. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because I, 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 just re I just recall, you know, uh, when Alexander the Great uh, what well over a hundred, 150 years later was leading, um, his armies into the Persian empire. He was, yeah. he was, uh, justifying it, some of the destruction and some of that with re basically revenge for what you the are absolutely right. He yeah. said, this is payback for what Xerxes did when he invaded Greece. Right. And I'm avenging those, those Greek heroes who fell at marathon and in the battle at Salamis. So, uh, it was, it was represented as, uh, Macedon, the Macedonians were, were related to the Greeks. Macedonian is a different language from Greece, but the King Philip of Macedon, whose son was Alexander the Great, Philip is the one who built up Macedon to be a great, great, great military power. They were Greek. They were Greeks, warlords who'd gone up and established themselves as kings of this Northern realm mm. of Macedon. And they had a, as warlords often do, a wider vision than the politically based military leaders in the Greek city-states. They thought big. Right. And Philip was the one who had designed the, the Macedonian army to be a, a uh, war machine, the like of which Greek city-states didn't know because they had citizen rowers and citizen soldiers who ever, after every battle went home to the farm or went back to their town and townhouse in the city and whatever, and got back to work. And the Macedonian army was more like our idea of a pro modern professional army. It was a standing mm. army. And certainly uh, Philip, uh, Alexander's father, who started the rise of Macedon, um, he, he did the conquest of Greece. And he, he, we don't know how far he wanted to go, but he died, he was assassinated. Alexander took over in his 20s and he took Greek and Macedonian armies all the way to India yeah. uh, in his effort to conquer the entire world. Um, there's a story, he died in his 30s, that he died uh, not because there were no more worlds to conquer, but that because in an infinity of worlds, he hadn't even managed to fully conquer one. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I, that may be a, a later uh story, but uh, it certainly embodies what both Philip and Alexander felt. Uh, one, one king, one world, one empire. That was their yeah. global vision. Interesting. Well, and I want to be aware of your time uh, here. I do. I did want to, before letting you go, I did want to talk a little bit about the Oracle. And I know this is a, the Oracle of Delphi. I know this is, this in and of itself is a, you know, could be weeks and you know each one of these subjects you could yeah let's get together know. again for the delphic oracle and its impact on war because okay no greek city state would um agree to fight 
if they had not sent an embassy to Delphi. It's a little sacred shrine high up in the mountains of central Greece on the slopes of Mount Parnassus. And that woman who sat there, and it's odd that in this totally male-dominated politically and militarily world of the Greeks, the strongest single voice for swaying strategies and opinions and resolutions of these city-states was the voice of that woman. She would have told you, I am channeling the voice of Mother Earth. They were priestesses there because the original head shrine had been to Gay, G-E. We see that in geography, geology. It means Earth to the Greeks. So geology, study of rocks, geography, mapping the Earth. Uh, so she's a priestess of Earth, but male priests of Apollo had taken over her shrine, planted a, a big, uh, 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 temple of Apollo on top of it. And Apollo is the god of enlightenment. Well, prophecies, the ultimate kind of enlightenments, seeing the future. So Apollo's priests ran the show and ran the business, but they couldn't get rid of those women who were trusted by all the Greeks to speak now under the supervision of Apollo, but speak for Mother Earth herself about what destiny had in store for them. And this, the priestess, uh, is it Pythia? Is that the- Pythia is her name. The ancient name for the uh, site is Pytho, P-Y-T-H-O. If that looks like Python, it's no accident. There was supposed to be a giant earth snake there that sort of served the, the goddess there, uh, Mother Earth, and that the, the uh, women in their trances, that the, the, the snake was there in the temple and would coil around. It wasn't like our- our boa constrictors and, and what Python has become. It was just a big local snake, but uh, they fed it. They, it was like a, um, not, it was, it was somebody they'd gone in partnership with. We won't say, I don't know how you domesticate a snake, but it was there and it was always uh, a part of that. And there was a laurel tree, Apollo. That was the sacred laurel tree. The wind through its leaves was supposed to, you listen to the rustling, you can interpret them, many kinds of things at Delphi. But the big deal was those women, the, the trances they went into, and out of that trance, they would answer your questions with these cryptic oracles. So they had a big impact on war because nobody in the Greek world, and sometimes outside the Greek world, people like uh, the king of Lydia, who that's modern Turkey, who launched some of the early wars, he would always send ambassadors to Delphi and say, what does the God say about my chances of winning if I attack Egypt or attack, uh, some other place and then they'll they'll take back the oracle's response so it was uh, a unique thing in in world history i think the power that that woman had over the the foreign policies of so many different peoples well and and like you you know it, it stands in such stark contrast to the um the uh greek warlord you were talking about earlier who was helping win the battle of marathon with such practical uh savvy kind of strategy and then on the other hand you have this superstition kind of uh you know um, aspect as well with some of the greek religion and the oracle uh it was really a mixture of considerations i guess it is a mixture but we have a modern saying that grew up since uh, world war one there are no atheists in foxholes mm, yeah if you are in a life or death situation and you're not in control of your own actions, which a soldier is not when they're in the foxhole, on the battlefield, on the front line, you get religion. 
Yeah. You, you turn to some spiritual force that will see you through. And we won't get into all the different possible ranges of, of what that spiritual force can be, but this is a tradition that is global. Yeah. That, that warriors, soldiers, those putting their lives at risk for their nation or their state or their city have to, uh, have to go to the spiritual side if yeah. they want to feel sure of victory. Well, and I was I was looking back at um, the Oracle of Delphi uh, and just kind of the the Wikipedia entry for the oracles, and I your name comes up probably twenty times there with some of the the research and stuff that you've done. It sounds like uh, you and and whoever you've been working with um, over the last few decades have done some uh, uh, some of the most groundbreaking research about the Oracle of Delphi. Um, so you know it. it um, it's, I still don't think I totally understand what the Oracle, you know, it's, it's something that's always been a bit mysterious to me. Um, but it does, it, maybe it does justify another, uh, another full episode just about that kind of thing. I would be yeah. honored to talk okay. about, uh, the, the, the religion and the, the power of prophecy in ancient warfare mm. is, a is a book in itself. Okay, great. Well, we'll do that soon. And I'll just remind listeners that we've been talking to John Hale. He's an American archeologist. Uh, he's done work on all kinds of subjects. His, his, uh, most recent book was Lords of the Sea, the epic story of the Athenian Navy and the birth of democracy. We've been talking about that today, as well as kind of a general history, uh, an introduction to the Greek and Persian wars. Is there anything else, uh, uh, professor Hale that you want to add to this discussion anywhere that you would like people to follow your work or tell us a little bit about maybe what you're working on now? I think we've covered that. I just want to thank you for creating this, this arena, this forum where people, I'm, I'm in one little corner of this vast world of, of uh, ancient history and conflicts. And uh, I thank you very much for making this a public forum where people who aren't embedded in the academic or university or museum world uh, and the scientific research in the field world can have access to this kind of information. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. I'm, I'm just a random uh, person and I'm always so gracious that people that, um, you know, have a world-class level of expertise in these subjects are willing to talk to me. So um, we'll post the episode soon and, and uh, thanks again. And I'll be in touch about uh, Oracle of Delphi for some time in the future. Thank you, Patrick. All right. Thanks, Professor. Thanks to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.